Well, a striking feature of Malaysian culture that I have noticed is the way that we fight for the bill. Uh, it's a very uh, strange concept for me when I first arrived in Malaysia. In Australia, we usually just split it evenly. And so it's not uncommon in Malaysia to have a showdown at the cash register. I don't know what your most uh, memorable experience of that is. Uh, it took me some time to learn this. When I first arrived, uh, someone from church said to me, Tim, you know, let me just check that your parking ticket is correct. I handed over my parking ticket and they paid it. I never realized that uh, I need to go to the bathroom is code for I'm going to pay the bill and all of these things. The sh I mean, to be honest, the sheer skill of Malaysians in fighting to pay is impressive. Well, to a large degree, that culture is motivated, I think, by, by sheer generosity. Uh, Malaysians are some of the most generous people that I know. But it's also true, I think, that behind our, our desire to blunder people, pay for people, is often our desire to keep face. Uh, that is why in a culture like ours, if you lose the battle to pay, we feel indebted and we feel like at the next available opportunity, I'm going to fight even harder so that I can pay you back. And I think in a culture like that, many of us therefore find it very difficult ever to ask someone for help or even to accept help when help is offered because it exposes our weakness, it, it attacks our pride, it undermines our self-sufficiency. By instinct, we, we think and we act as if acceptance is based on works. It's just ingrained to who we are. And that can make us very hard for us to believe a gospel of grace, a gospel where you cannot pay back, a gospel where you cannot earn your way, no matter how hard you try. Well, that is the big issue in the passage this morning. You see it there in verse 18 as the ruler asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the question that has been going in this whole section of Luke's gospel from chapters 13 to 19, Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem, and as he walks step by step to his death, he is showing his disciples how to enter the kingdom he is bringing. And, we, and we've seen all the way through this section that there are two contrasting ways. There is a false path that leads to destruction, and there is a true path that leads to life. The false path is the, the path of the Pharisees, a path of works, a path of earning my way. The true path, the path of the sinners and the tax collectors and the prodigal son, the path of repentance and faith. And as in our passage today, Luke again, uh, once again, holds up those two paths to us so that we will be absolutely clear what kind of a person will receive eternal life and what person won't. And we need to listen carefully because it is exactly the opposite of what we would expect. Well, point one, then we see Jesus tells us the way to eternal life is humbly seeking mercy. Uh, verses 9 to 14 are a parable. The context is always important. It's there in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others 
with contempt. This is the kind of person who thinks to themselves, you know, God should be really impressed with me because I'm such a good person. Because I always go to church and I always do kind things for other people and my speech is really good and, and I'm definitely much better than those other people over there, those sinful people. Uh, Jesus, of course, has in mind the Pharisees, outwardly religious, but inwardly interested only in money and the praise of people. We've already seen back in chapter 15, verse 1, as the, the tax collectors and the sinners gather around Jesus, the Pharisees and the scribes are there complaining, this man receives sinners and eats with them. But it's easy to be like them. To, to, to start comparing ourselves with one another, thinking, well, I'm serving more than that person. I'm more regular in my attendance than that person. I don't struggle with that sin that he struggles with. And we start to think that God is impressed and that God's going to send me to heaven. Well, this parable then is for us. We're introduced to the characters in verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, these two people could not be more different. The Pharisees, as we know, were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Whenever we read the, the Pharisees in the Bible, we just boo and hiss because we think that they're so bad. But actually, in Jesus' day, they were seen as the moral, the religious, the respectable, the leaders, so dedicated to following God's law, they invented their own laws just in case so they wouldn't break them. Well, you can tell a lot about a person by what they pray. And this Pharisee prays in verse 11. Standing by himself, he prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And you notice his prayer is all about himself how good he thinks he is in comparison to other people. He doesn't steal, he's faithful in his marriage, he's, he's religious. Uh, the Old Testament says perhaps you should fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. This guy fasts twice a week. He gives away a tenth of all his income. They're all good things. Perhaps today he would say, God, I thank you that I'm not a terrorist or a drug dealer. I thank you that I love my family that I go to church every week and I have on an online pledge for my giving. Appears so religious, moral, just the kind of person you'd expect God to accept. Well, the second character could not be more different. The, uh, the, the tax collector. Tax collectors worked for the Roman government, collecting tax taxes from their own people. They were allowed to collect as much as they want and keep the remainder as commission. They were extortioners. They were unjust. They feasted, not fasted. They were greedy. They were not generous. He was just the kind of person that you would expect not to go to heaven. He is selfish, immoral, irreligious. But the tax collector also prays in verse 13. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
Uh, the contrast, again, couldn't be greater. The, the Pharisee looks up. The tax collector looks down. The Pharisee is thankful. The tax collector is ashamed. The Pharisee stands near. The tax collector is far off at a distance. The Pharisee thanks God for his goodness. And the tax collector can only admit his sinfulness. And as he beats his breast in utter desperation, cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows he's rejected God's rule. He knows he deserves God's judgment. He knows he has no goodness to stand on. He simply pleads for mercy. It's like if you've, uh, you know, you've been driving or something like that and you've been going a bit too fast. You know you have. The policeman pulls you over and you ask that they will let you off. You plead for mercy. You don't give bribes, right? <laughs> now, it's a familiar story to us, I know, but the, the, the conclusion is meant to be shocking. Jesus says there in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. To be justified means that you are not guilty. It means in court that you have been declared righteous. You are accepted. And I think if we just went out on the street and just did a, a little bit of a survey of the people out there on Data and Medica, and we asked them, what kind of person do you think God would let into heaven? Someone good and religious? Or an evil person who is unjust and so on, but asks for forgiveness? I think nearly every person would say the person who would get in is the Pharisee. But Jesus' shocking conclusion to the parable is that it is not the proud Pharisee who gets in. It is the humble tax collector. The parable is meant to shock us. We're so used to thinking that getting to heaven is about impressing God with our goodness. And Jesus tells us we've got it wrong because good and religious people go to hell. Our problem is that our plane of comparison is totally wrong. Uh, like the Pharisees, we start comparing ourselves with one another. We find someone who is worse than us, and you can always do that. And then we feel happy that we are good. Or we think that God is going to apply some kind of a goodness test uh, where if you get 50%, you know, more good outweighs the bad, then that will be enough. But the problem with all that kind of comparative thinking and all that kind of works-based religion, whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism or, or Roman Catholicism or simply the person who walks into a church thinking that they're doing God a favor is that the God of the Bible does, isn't engaged in some kind of cosmic Miss Universe contest where we're all trying to impress him. God compares us to himself. His standard is to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves at every moment. We are to be always full of faithfulness, always full of love, and compassion and truth. To never tell a lie, not even one, never gossip, 
Never have a lustful thought. Never be greedy. And the truth is, unless we are deceiving ourselves, none of us can even reach close to that standard. And that is why the Pharisee does not go home right with God. He's trusting in himself. He's trusting in his own goodness. But his own goodness is so pathetic, despite what he thinks. But his pride and his comparisons have blinded him from the truth of his desperate need for forgiveness from God. The tax collector is different. The tax collector humbles himself. He knows his sin. He knows his unworthiness. And so he gets on his knees, pleads to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he goes home, right with God. Because of the God of the Bible is not just a God of perfect justice. He's also a God of perfect mercy. And we might ask, well, how can a, a God who demands absolute perfect justice let this sinful tax collector off the hook? I mean, it, it just sounds too good to be true. There's no such thing as a free lunch unless you come to smack and it's your first time, right? <laughs> Surely there is something we must do. But as we read on in Luke's Gospel, we find out why God can show mercy to sinful people. In fact, Jesus tells us himself, down in verse 31, Jesus takes the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him they will kill him, and on the third day... He will rise. Jesus is the one who lives the perfect life. And Jesus is on a mission to the cross. Because there on the cross, he will bear on himself all of our failures and our sinfulness and our injustice and our lies and our stealing and our cheating. And he will bear the punishment that we deserve in our place. As our substitute. So that God can declare a sinner like you and me, justified, not guilty, forgiven. No catches, no conditions, free grace. The question this morning is, are we like the Pharisee or the tax collector? It doesn't matter how long we've been coming to church. Deep down... Who do I trust in? Am I trusting in myself as I compare myself to others? My own goodness? Or am I trusting in the mercy of God? If you're here today and you have not yet trusted Jesus as your Lord, if you've not yet asked God for mercy, please do it. Even now, pray. Ask him for mercy, and you will go home from here with a clean slate, right with God. Well, if we've truly understood this, then of course we will no longer look down on other people. Before God, we are all sinners. We're not better than one another. All of us need mercy. And so to look around at someone else in arrogant pride and think, I'm better than you. 
is a complete failure to, to grasp the gospel of grace. We are to treat all people as equals. No matter what their past, no matter what they have done, because the cross is the great leveler. To inherit eternal life, we must seek God's mercy alone. Well, secondly, we must trust God like a child. We read on in verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Uh, I love this story. Uh, Touching here is a sign of blessing. And so these young uh, babies are being brought to Jesus by their parents for him to bless them. But as they do so, the, the, the disciples decide that they're going to be security guards and protect Jesus from this great threat of babies. Now, we need to understand that in Jesus' day, children were not thought of in the same way they are today. Children were the lowest in society. They were weak, they were helpless, they were unimportant, and in the Greco-Roman world, one could literally throw away an unwanted child, exposing them until they died. It was not uncommon. Now, the disciples are probably thinking that these worthless children are a waste of Jesus' time. Here is Jesus. He's on a mission to Jerusalem. He's bringing in the kingdom of God. Jesus has got more important things to do than put on a babysitting service for these parents. Perhaps Jesus should be spending on his time with some more important people, perhaps like them. But Jesus has already taught the disciples back in chapter 9, the kingdom of God is not for people who think that they are great and important. It is for the weak, for those who trust him like a child. These disciples, by their actions, are denying the gospel. And so Jesus rebukes them in verse 16. Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Now we must remember that just a a few chapters earlier, back in chapter 17, Jesus had said it would be better for someone who is, rather than causing a little one to stumble, to tie a millstone over their neck and throw it into the sea and, and drown. And that is exactly what the disciples are doing right here as these little ones are being brought to Jesus. Jesus says, let them Come. And here we see our, our attitude to children reflects in some degree our attitude to the gospel. Is the gospel for everyone, no matter how weak or helpless or dependent, or is it only for important people? Jesus is on a journey to the cross, he's bringing in the kingdom of God. Just one more chapter, he will arrive in Jericho, the last stop before Jerusalem. And Jesus has time to welcome babies, to hold them, smile at them, pray for them. And these actions show us something of the value of children, surely. Each one made in the image of God, valuable. I wonder in our own attitude to children, are we more like the disciples? or like Jesus. Uh, If we're not very careful, 
entirely possible that we will start to think of our Sunday school ministry as a babysitting service, where we send off the children to do their colouring in sheets so that we can do our real church without distraction. Perhaps we're, we're tempted to think that, that teaching the children to know Jesus and love Jesus and serve Jesus is not quite as important as what's happening in here with us. And that would be an absolutely huge mistake. There's a reason why we have kids' church. There's a reason why we have kids' songs and kids' spots. There's a reason why we want the children to be here and they're not an intrusion into our worship because they are God's people too. There is a reason why our kids' church teachers labour week after week to teach them God's word and disciple them because Jesus wants them to know him and love him and serve him because to such as these belong the kingdom. I wonder if there are implications here for our beliefs uh, on infant baptism. Of course, this passage doesn't prove infant baptism. But surely it is consistent. Jesus wants children to come to him. And infant baptism is such a beautiful picture of the gospel of grace where one is is brought to Jesus completely helpless, completely dependent, and yet accepted by Jesus as their parents bring them up to know him. Well, Jesus has got more. He goes on, verse 17, Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus says we've got a few things to learn from children. Now on the screen is a picture of my two children, Carissa and Christopher. It's actually Christopher's first birthday today. And if there's anything that I've learned from three years of parenting, it is this. Children can do nothing for themselves. They can't change their clothes, they can't bathe themselves, they can't feed themselves, and they can't change their diaper. I really wish they could do that. (laughs) Anything a child has comes through receiving. Uh, Children don't think that they're great because of all their achievements. Babies don't have to earn their food. Children don't have to impress their parents uh, in order to get love. Babies are weak. Babies are helpless. Babies are completely dependent on their parents in every way. And Jesus' point is simple. If you wish to enter the kingdom of God, then forget about your good works. Forget about your own self-importance. Leave all your baggage at the door. You must receive it like a baby. Utterly dependent on God's mercy. Now, that's a humbling thought, isn't it? Uh, It's no wonder that 75% of people come to know Christ before the age of 14. Children more naturally trust people in this way. We need to work hard at discipling our children in this way. I hope you're going to come for the parenting seminar. But if we will not come empty-handed, if we will not come humble and submissive, completely depending on the mercy of God, we will never get into the kingdom. The door will be shut. 
So have you trusted God like a child? You may have spent your whole life doing Christian things, but have you come to Jesus with nothing? That is what a Christian is. Well, thirdly, Jesus teaches us that receiving eternal life means putting him first above everything. And uh, this third story really is the climax. Verse 18, a ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The question is asked by a rich ruler. He has status, he has significance, and he has a lot of money. He is self-dependent, self-sufficient. He is the exact opposite of the baby in the previous verse. He's just like the Pharisees. But his question is fatally flawed. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, just think about it. You don't earn an inheritance. I mean, people try and do this, isn't it, when they have a rich relative to you know, try and uh, butter them up, do lots of nice things, cook them dinner in the hope that they'll get their name into the inheritance. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way, does it? And uh, the person could accept all of the lovely things and leave your name out anyway. Because an inheritance is always a gift received by grace. The only way to get it is to be a child of the giver. And there's a second problem in verse 19. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. We see two things here. Firstly, Jesus' identity. If God is the only one who is good and he is calling Jesus good, then what does that mean of Jesus? He is God. But Jesus' second point is that this ruler, who is not God, is therefore not good. He lists some of the Ten Commandments, which should have proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Verse 20, he says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother. And those commandments bear within them something of the goodness of God's character. Instead of murder, we are to do whatever we can to preserve life. Instead of stealing, we are to be generous and giving. Instead of lying, we are to love the truth. But the reality is that none of us are good like that. We could take any one of these as an example. For any of us really look back on our life and conclude, I've never told a single lie, never a half-truth or a deception. I've never had a lustful thought, never committed adultery in my heart, never. Always honoured my parents in every way. I just want to ask his parents, right? That one will be... Finish. It should be obvious. If this is God's standard of goodness, this man should have recognized long ago his need for God's mercy. But the trouble with such a, a rule-keeping approach to God is that it's so easy to be self-deceived, to think, if I just tick the boxes, I'll be okay. And so verse 21, the ruler comes back, he says, all these I've kept since from my youth. Really? I would love to meet his parents. As good as he may well have been, he has seriously misunderestimated the sin in the depths of his heart. 
And Jesus lovingly brings it to light with this very simple but difficult test. When verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, that's very gracious, isn't it? (laughs) Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. It's a great challenge because that cuts right to the heart of the issue. Does he trust God or does he trust himself? Is he loving God or does he love money? Does he want heavenly treasure or is he content with earthly treasure? And you see what Jesus is saying here. Look, you can tick all the boxes if you like. Uh, Think that I'm such a good person. Never murdered anyone. Tick, you know. Never stolen anything. Tick. And at the very same time, you might not love God at all. You might not trust God at all. Your treasure might be something completely different. Your idol might be something like money. And so what would we do if Jesus forced us to make the same choice for whatever is that one thing that we would look to for happiness? Would we give it up if Jesus said? Money or Jesus? Which one? Remember what Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 13. It's on the screen, I think. No one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But verse 23, when the ruler heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. He chooses Money, can you believe it? He refuses to be like a child. He refuses to stop trusting in his own goodness and his own wealth. Money was his God and he would not give it up and Jesus' question exposed the truth. He was not good. He was greedy. He was not serving God. He was serving money. He sought eternal life, but when it was offered... He walked away. I think our heart ought to ache for this person. Here he is, giving up the most important thing in life for temporary pleasure and security. Our heart ought to ache as we look around in the real world. Today, where there are so many like the rich ruler, who every day walk away from Jesus because they're entrapped by their own desires and at the same time deceive themselves, thinking that they're good and God is happy with them. Well, what would make someone make such an irrational choice? Jesus explains in verse 25... He says, for it was easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to put a camel through the eye of a needle. I thought I'd simplify it a little bit. So I've got a picture of a camel, right? And I've got the end of a pen, right? Let's see if it'll work, right? It still doesn't work. you You can try later if you want, right? Now, Jesus is not just saying that it's hard. 
Jesus is saying that it is impossible. It is impossible for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that should make us slightly uncomfortable because by any measure of what rich is, many of the people in this room would qualify if we have a, own a car or a house or we attended a private school or we've been to university or etc. In the world's standards, we are very rich indeed. And Jesus says it is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, unless God does a supernatural work in your heart, the rich will never turn to Jesus. It's just too easy to look for meaning and satisfaction and happiness and security in money instead. Now what should make this even more shocking is that in the Old Testament, material riches were the sign of God's blessing. Remember King Solomon with his great masses of riches. They were the, the sign that God had kept his promise to Abraham to, to bring blessing to Israel. And now Jesus says that a rich person who in the eyes of everyone of Jesus' day was blessed by God, it is impossible to enter the kingdom. That is the reason of the despair of the crowd in verse 26. As they say, then who can be Saved. If there is no hope for this person who is rich, who is moral, who is religious, if he walks away, what hope is there for anyone? And Jesus says in verse 27, what is impossible with men is possible with God. God is the God who makes the impossible possible who brings something out of nothing, who makes enemies into friends. God can do what we cannot. God can save sinners. And God can save rich people. Now in chapter 19, we will meet a rich sinner named Zacchaeus. He receives Jesus joyfully. And as proof of his repentance, he gives half of all his possessions to the poor. Now, that's very helpful in understanding this passage. It's not that rich people cannot become Christians. Zacchaeus does. And it's not that Jesus always mandates literally giving away everything that you own. Zacchaeus only gives away half, and he's commended. The point of the passage is not that we must give away everything that we own or we're not Christian. The, the point is, are we trusting in Jesus as first in our life or are we trusting in something else? And the only real test to know what, whether uh, you're trusting in something else or Jesus is to ask the question, can you give it away? And if you're not willing to give it away, then it is your idol. What is it in your life? Is there anything in your life that you are not willing to give away to choose Jesus first? Perhaps a non-Christian boyfriend. Perhaps a job that takes you away from church week after week. Whatever it is, be warned. doesn't matter how good you look, how religious you seem. If you will not give it up, 
that thing is your idol and you are not a Christian. Moreover, we cannot read Luke's gospel and not conclude that it is impossible to become a Christian without it making a serious impact on our finances. Now, Jesus says, you cannot love God and money. Jesus says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus calls this rich man to sell all his possessions. Zacchaeus sells half of them. The rich fool and the rich man who refuse to uh, be rich towards God, they find themselves up in hell. There is no way that you can conclude on any reading of Luke's gospel that if we are truly a Christian, it will not make a serious impact on our attitude to money. Christians are those, like the dishonest manager, we, we use everything that we've been given to serve the kingdom radically and sacrificially. And so like this rich ruler, we're being presented with a decision this morning. Who will we trust? Our own goodness or Jesus? Who will we serve? Our money or Jesus? Jesus makes it very clear here. If we will have eternal life, we must come like a baby. Empty-handed and trust him with our life. Scary to start giving money to church, isn't it? Will God provide for me? Or do you trust Jesus? If I give up that that non-Christian boyfriend, will I ever get married? Do you trust Jesus? Over and over again, as we follow Jesus, we'll be faced with this decision over and over again. Will it really be worth it? Is this really right? Is it really worth making those hard decisions to put Jesus first? And the wonderful thing is how this passage ends. As Jesus gives such a great assurance to his followers. So Peter says here in verse 28, see, we have left our homes and followed you. They have literally obeyed Jesus' command. What does Jesus have to say to a person like him? Verse 29, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. You notice how it just assumes there, isn't it, that Jesus is going to be more important than your parents. And Jesus is going to be more important than your children. Don't ever say to your child, will you, why are you so serious on this Christian stuff? Shouldn't you worry more about your study or your career? Don't ever say that. Jesus must come first. And Jesus promises here, if we do it, whatever we must leave for Jesus, it will be worth it. 
Whether it's putting him first over career or family or money, it will be worth it now, and it will be worth it forever. Now, this verse doesn't mean, as uh, some uh, prosperity teachers would at this point, and, you know, they pull out the 100 ringgit bill and they say, look, if you put this in the plate over there, you're going to have 1,000 ringgit in your bank account by the end of the week. Just follow him. He'll make you rich and successful now. I mean, that's crazy, isn't it? This, Jesus has just said it's impossible for the rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why would he then be wanting us all to become rich? Now, what Jesus is speaking here is of the church. Brothers, sisters, spiritual parents, spiritual Christians. Christians can travel anywhere in the world. You will find a home as another Christian opens it to you. And in the age to come, eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? We live in a culture that makes it hard to ever ask for anything and even harder to accept it. We feel we need to impress other people. But we've seen this morning that the only way any of us are ever getting to heaven is to stop trusting in ourselves and ask God for mercy. We need his help. It's not about being good. It's not about being important. It's not something that we can earn by our own goodness. It's not something we can buy with our money. The only way is to come as a baby, weak, helpless, and nothing to offer. The only way to heaven is to throw yourself at the foot of the cross and say to God, I am a sinner. I have nothing to offer. I don't deserve a place in your kingdom. I need your mercy. And the wonderful promise is that if we do that, we will go home justified. So will you go home today rejoicing or sad? Will you go home with eternal life or under the judgment of God? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your great mercy that you have shown to sinful people like us. Lord, we thank you that Jesus went to the cross, that he lived the perfect life we, we, we haven't lived, and that he died the death that we deserve, so that now, as we, if we will come to you broken and empty-handed, we can receive full and free forgiveness. Father, we know that we are by nature proud. And so we ask, Lord, that you would, you would humble us and help us to accept this gift free of charge. Help us to put aside any notion of our own importance or our own self-sufficiency and use our money use everything in our life to put Jesus first 
and to trust in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.